Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. As always, I am your host, Eric Koslick. I'm particularly pleased to introduce this week's episode because it was actually in the original stable of episode ideas that I wanted to pursue when we first started this podcast over a year ago. But first, I got a really cool little giveaway to tell you about. I happened to get an email from podcast listener Greg Azorski, who was in D.C. for a couple days recently, and he wanted to grab a cocktail and hang out, so, you know, twist my arm, right? Well, Greg is a Kansas City-based apparel and print designer, really awesome guy, and he was kind enough to donate a couple excellent signed cocktail prints, one of a Negroni and one of a Boulevardier the two most iconic, boozy Campari cocktails. We'll have photos of both those prints on our Instagram the day this episode launches, July 26th, 2018. And if you want to win one, you need to do two things. Head on over to Instagram and in a comment, specify whether you are on Team Negroni or Team Boulevardier. And two, tag a couple friends who also know what's up with these cocktails, somebody who you'd like to grab one with. Also, definitely check out Greg Azorski on Instagram at KCCool11, no spaces, no underscore, and see his creative designs and all of the amazing cocktails that he makes. This would obviously be a very logical place to talk about this week's featured cocktail, but wait, I gotta tell you about the interview guest, or else it's not gonna make as much sense. This time around, I got the chance to pull up a mic with Brian McGahee of the Neighborhood Restaurant Group, who's currently running the bar program over at Eat Bar in Eastern Market here in Washington, D.C. And our focus for this interview is how to demystify the way that cocktail bars price their cocktails and give you a set of tools to help you spot a good cocktail deal when you see one. The hospitality industry is driven by a really unique set of economic forces. And having a better grasp on those forces is a great way to understand the value of a perfectly crafted cocktail both at home and out at the bar. So now that you know a bit more about this week's interview, it's finally time to make yourself that drink. This week's featured cocktail is a little classic called the Bee's Knees. To make one, you'll need two ounces of gin, three quarters of an ounce of honey syrup, which is a one-to-one ratio of honey and water, syrupified on the stove, three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice, and an optional lemon twist for your garnish. All you got to do is shake all those ingredients over ice in a nice cocktail shaker, strain it into a stemmed cocktail glass, and enjoy. This is a prohibition era drink, and all the recipe blogs out there, at least the ones on the first page of the Google results for this cocktail, seem to be plagiarizing a Wikipedia article that suggests the sweet and sour notes in this drink were meant to cover up the harshness of bathtub gin, i.e. stuff that was made without sophisticated distilling technology. Now, I'm sure there's at least a grain of truth to this. I mean, there was a lot of illegal distillation happening during Prohibition, but let's also just 
kind of appreciate the fact that sweet and sour go really well together, especially when it comes to clear spirits like gin. Another reason why I wanted to feature this cocktail is because Eat Bar does a really cool riff on the bee's knees that they call the Killer Queen, which is such a great name. And I think that looking at how Brian and his team revamped this classic is a great case study in cocktail design. They made two really important changes. First, they used two types of gin. One of them is an aged gin, so there's a bit more nuance and flavor right out of the gate. And the other really cool thing about the Killer Queen, compared to the Bee's Knees, is that it uses cardamaro, which is a bitter cardamom liqueur, as a source of both sweetness and bitterness. They've got honey syrup in there as well, and lemon, and so when you place this drink side by side with its classic predecessor, it's almost like looking at two different Pokemon. Right? The Killer Queen is the evolved version of the Bee's Knees. It's got everything that works about the original, all those same attributes, as well as a couple of new features that make it even more compelling. If you want the specs for the Killer Queen, feel free to hit up EatBarDC, no spaces, no underscores, on Instagram, and I'm sure they'll help you to recreate it at home. And now that you're deeply unsettled by my Pokemon cocktail metaphor, let's turn our attention back to the drinkonomics of the cocktail bar. Some of the specific topics Brian and I discuss in this interview include what you're actually paying for when you go out to a nice bar or restaurant, how a bar prices out their cocktails and creates a balanced and profitable beverage program, the ways in which a cocktail menu is like a resume for a bar and how to read that resume to determine the potential quality of the drinks before ordering. How tipping and certain cultural expectations about how bartenders and servers get paid has led to new legislation that's threatening the service industry here in DC. A few notes on the Woody Allen movie Midnight in Paris and much, much more. This interview was recorded at a really cool spot called Rustico in Boston just across the river from DC. So please enjoy the audio verite that comes from recording on location. And with that in mind, let's kick off this Drinkonomics Crash Course with Brian McGahee of The Neighborhood Restaurant Group. Brian, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So today we are sitting here with Brian McGahee who is a bar manager and you have a lot of experience going into bars and kind of developing successful bar programs, including cocktails and other, other types of things that people drink, like wine and beer. Yeah, absolutely. And so I was hoping we would be able to talk about the nuts and bolts of that. Sounds good. So can you just introduce yourself and uh, tell everybody who you are and, and what you're all about? Yeah, so my name is Brian McGahey, as you said, I'm currently uh, running Eat Bar, which is on Capitol Hill. Uh, I'm on 8th Street in Barracks Row, brought there from um, one of our Maryland restaurants that I work for in the group, which was Owen's Ordinary, had put a, launched a pretty successful cocktail program there, then we did some seasonal releases, and then my boss said, hey, come on down into D.C. and see what we can do. It's a great market, we have a lot of fun in D.C. It's a fairly open market, so you can get a lot of different spirits, a lot of different wines, beers, we can bring stuff from all over the world. I'm also really big on focusing on local producers, as you know. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. And that's uh, a big focus for me. And that scene, both 
uh, on both sides of the Potomac has become really great in the last couple years. In particular, Maryland has been coming up. Um, they changed some of the laws in Maryland, which has allowed people to sell directly to restaurants in Maryland, which allows those distillers a lot more freedom, um, which is great. So we see a really big burgeoning uh, distillery scene happening in Maryland. Obviously, it had already been happening in, in D.C. And, and Virginia is just blown up in the last five or six years as well. So there's so many fantastic people out there doing craft products that can be used in so many different ways. So it's kind of at the epicenter of that, and it's really fun to be in that environment. Um, For sure. So what brought you behind the bar? What's your background? <laughs> it's kind of interesting you ask that. So I come from a fine wine background. I'm a certified sommelier. I got into the business as a dishwasher at 14, and I've been getting basically worked every position other than working on the line in the kitchen, um, which has been a lot of fun. All those different jobs, there's so many different moving pieces that are that come together to make a restaurant work. And being able to experience all of those has been a really fun adventure. So I ran a wine program at a restaurant in Maryland. Um, we have 400 bottle wine list. That was a full-time job, it was a lot of fun. I got to meet people from all over the world again in the wine world. When I jumped into the company I work for now, which is a neighborhood restaurant group, um, I had some good knowledge of cocktails because I had been working on them, which I think a lot of your audience is doing stuff at home. I did a lot of experimentation at home uh, with what little means that I had at home. And because as a wine person, flavor and balance are so important, you really can apply those same concepts of palate to cocktails. Uh, I've also always been very much of an amateur chef, never worked in a professional kitchen, as I said. I could not do what those guys do. They do it day in and day out, but I love to cook, experiment with cuisines from all around the world. That's always been a personal um, hobby of mine. So really cooking kind of brings, um, or when you're doing, working on cocktails, you bring all that together. And a huge part of that is, you know, balancing all those different flavors and bringing in different things and saying, hey, this works with this or that works with that. And a huge part of that is definitely experimentation. You make a lot of mistakes, you make a lot of crappy cocktails, and then eventually you find something that's beautiful that really works. And so basically, um, I was working at our 50 Beer Tap House. It's Mary Maryland focused up there, Owens Ordinary. And they asked me to jump in and help with their cocktail program. Mm -hmm. And it was really my first time doing something on that level professionally. And uh, had a lot of fun with it. Had some great partners there at the restaurant that were helping me experiment and trying all the different things that we had. We were able to bring in some new stuff as well. Uh, so we did a whole new cocktail program then released there about a year ago, about 14, 15 months. Great success. We went from very small cocktail sales to big cocktail sales. Um, responses were extremely positive. So obviously my boss said, good job, this is awesome. Did it again in the fall, and then they asked me to come down and work on Eat Bar's program. Um, and Eat Bar uh, had a very small program that was decent, but not really very creative or interesting. And so we were able to launch a whole new release there. I actually worked in partnership with Kendra Copeland, who is the bar manager at The Partisan in Penn Quarter. Great asset, her. And her palate is fantastic, and the way that she thinks about things is amazing. Um, so we created a new program together and launched 17 new cocktails for Eat Bar. My goodness. Um, at one time, um, which was obviously a reach, 
but on purpose we wanted to make a big splash in the neighborhood and we did no one else in that neighborhood was running a program like that right we have trimmed down now to an even we try to be in the 12 to 14 range which is right. still a little bit high but it's perfect for us and you know it's been a great opportunity to really you know go on my own and have a lot of fun with it and having the partners that i have um, in this company, because I have so many different resources, people that have amazing experiences in all kinds of different worlds, and chefs um, that we bring in from all over the place that are awesome. Um, and I can reach out to our head chefs. I can do Red Apron Chef. I ask him questions. How do these flavor palettes work together? He has experience. And I just kind of bring all that in together, and that's basically how we work. So working in a place that's very dynamic where we can always be changing things is great. And that's what is the whole point of what we do at Neighborhood Restaurant Groups. We're always being dynamic, so it's fun. Right. Yeah, it seems like a really great company. It seems like launching something like extensive cocktail menu is necessarily a group project. I mean, it sounds just like a recipe for burnout if you try and do it all yourself and a recipe for not having a successful cocktail program. So very cool, really interesting to hear your backstory as the most kind of basic drinkonomics question to start off, I would kind of like wade in to the shallow end. I'm gonna preface it by saying that our listeners are from all over the place. We have people from big cities throughout the nation here in the US, uh, some folks who are kind of living more out in the country where they have access to maybe a different type of restaurant or um, maybe a different like cost structure when it comes to the drinks that they're buying. Uh, and we also have people from uh, around the world listening as well. So the universal truth about beer, wine, and cocktails at a bar is that it seems like they're usually more expensive than they would be if you bought them at a liquor store or you know, were to do the, the math and figure out how much your at-home cocktail cost you. So I was hoping you could explain why that is so that people can really understand what they're paying for when, when yeah. they go into a bar and order a nice cocktail. Absolutely. So there's really two factors here. One is an issue of overhead. And the reality is that every day we pay rent regardless of how busy the place is. We pay for electricity, we pay all those things, um, much higher obviously than you would in your home, which is already cost that you're paying anyway. There's a huge part of our business is labor as well. You know, everything that we do in the restaurant business is extremely labor intensive. When we're cooking your food, you know, there's somebody back there who's getting paid to prep that vegetable, to cut it up, to prep it in the way you want. Then you're paying another person who's gonna pick it up and create a dish for you um, as you're eating it. It's the exact same thing in the bar. Um, there's a bartender, there's a busboy, there's somebody who's cleaning your glasses. You know, there's a, you don't have to clean up after yourself at all. There's somebody who's taking care of all of those things. We have to pay somebody to come in and clean the restaurant at the end of the night. You know, there's, there's a huge amount of labor. The third part is that there's, as we spoke of before, there's an experimentation aspect. Um, we're gonna try a lot of things before we give you something that we like. So this happens in the kitchen when the cook is creating a new dish. They're gonna use a whole bunch of product before they get to where it needs to be, where it's perfect for our guest. It's exactly the same with cocktails. I have made a cocktail before that took me two or three tries and we got perfect. And I've had one where for six weeks, we just kept banging at it, trying new ingredients, putting new things together. Every single time, that was a waste of money, essentially. The idea being that at the end, we were gonna find something that was perfect. So there's that curation aspect to it. And that is, that is probably the biggest part of it, um, is that we have to um, 
that's all built into that cost of the cocktail. And it's especially true with us because we are so dynamic. So it's not like we made a cocktail once and then we're going to sell it for 10 years. We're going to make that cocktail and then three or four months from now, we're going to probably switch it out for something new. It's going to be an experiment for them as well. So that's, that's kind of really the big part of it, um, I think. Got it. Yeah, some, sometimes the way I think about it, like when I go to a bar and I buy a cocktail and I get that really self, like when I get inside my own head and start thinking about like what that $12 that I just paid for it represents, I like start looking around, I'm like, oh, that paying for that light bulb right now. Absolutely. I'm paying for like this music channel that they probably have a subscription to. I'm paying like, and it, it's, um, it's a little creepy because I start getting really self-conscious about it, but uh, it seems like based on what you're describing, the intent is coming from a place of hospitality. Exactly. And consistency? Yeah, and hospitality is the, huge, is the biggest part of it. You know, we work in a business where there are 100 restaurants you could pick to go eat, especially in the DC market. That's just the way it is. There's a new restaurant opening up every day. Um, and a big difference between being successful and not being successful is being 100% focused on hospitality. Um, and that requires everyone being always on all the time um, and there's a certain type of person that's really good at that, and there's a certain person that's not. And the people that are, honestly, it's a talent, and that's something that requires being paid, which I think we might talk of in a little bit as well about shipping sure. and stuff like that. But, yeah, right, right. Uh, but there's, there is a craft to the business, and it does require that, that aspect. Okay, so, and I think, you know, the normal person walking in off the street is not gonna be thinking about the fact that they're paying for the cost of the electric bill. So just something to kind of keep in mind. I, I know from some gigs that we have done as Modern Bar Cart, uh, from a cocktail catering perspective, it's possible to take various aspects of a drink and break it down, do some basic division, dividing, for example, a 750 ml or 25 ounce bottle into two ounce servings. That means you get roughly 12 and a half servings or 12 servings. Yeah, exactly. And then you can start doing math using those variables to kind of play with cost per serving. Is that something that you do when you're planning a cocktail menu? Absolutely. We have to. In the end, we got to pay our bills. And I have made cocktails that I have created and loved. And then when I punched up the numbers, it wasn't feasible. Um, and that... It's sometimes that's unfortunate. And that's, those cocktails might run as a special for a little while, but if I were to run them for six months, it would cost us a lot of money. Um, and that unfortunately is something that we can't do. So I don't go from a math perspective at all. I start from a curatorial perspective and I say, hey, I really love these new tiki bitters from Modern Bar Cart. I wanna put them in a cocktail. What other things can I put in there? Flavor profiles, put that whole thing together. Um, then I go sit down at the computer and I type all these things into a sheet and I say exactly how much each thing is going to cost for that portion. And then that's based on our budget. Can I make this cocktail work? If it doesn't work, I might say, hey, maybe you need to use something different. You know, I can't use a $50 scotch in a cocktail, but maybe I can find a fairly good quality scotch that works in that cocktail that's only 30 bucks that can make a huge difference. And now we can make a cocktail that's affordable. Because the truth in the matter is that we want you to have a great value in that cocktail. 
Um, and DC, obviously, things are a little bit higher overall because rents are a lot higher, and everyone knows that. I mean, if you live in an apartment in DC, you pay a higher rent than if you do out in the suburbs. It's the same thing for the restaurants. You know, we're paying a higher rent, so we do have to cover that cost, um, and their budgets are according to that as well. Um, but if I put in a cocktail and price it out, and it's going to be like eighteen or nineteen dollars, I'm not putting it on a menu. Sure, that's just not fair. Like. If somebody wants to order that cocktail at the bar, I will make it for them. But on a regular basis, I don't want to see an $18 cocktail in menu. Right. And I think that's... No matter a, how cool it is. <laughs> that's natural because it's, um, it, it's sticker shock, right? Uh, yeah. Somebody sees that and then they start making assumptions about like, well, what kind of place is this? And, you know, you get uptight and uh, the whole kind of experience is kind of tinted or tinged from that yeah, single exactly. sticker shock of a number that they see. So that's a really, I feel like a, a pretty good like, instinct to have. I have two kind of follow-ups. And if any of these kind of relate to trade secrets for neighborhood restaurant group, then you can feel free to either decline or give a hypothetical that might be true for another type of restaurant or right. bar. But my questions really were, do you have a specific margin that you look to get on a cocktail? Whether that's a, an $8 cocktail or a you know a $15 cocktail, is there a margin that you're going for? And then also, is there some sort of like big master equation that's hovering in the clouds that, the, that your cocktail margins have to be a part of? So I would say there's two answers to this question. Yes, there's an overall budget that we have to make, but that is for an entire program and for an entire restaurant. And obviously we break it down so that we can have, make best decisions about. Liquor has a certain amount of margin, wine has a different margin, beer has a different margin. We tend to run fairly low margins because in our group, we run really high quality products. At most bars, when you sit down and ask for a vodka tonic, they're gonna pour you a vodka tonic from a $5 bottle of vodka and they're gonna charge you six bucks. Okay, so they made a lot of money off of that $6, right? We are going to charge you $9 for a vodka tonic, but we paid like $30 for that bottle of vodka. Our margin is smaller, obviously, in this case. Um, so that is our philosophy in general, is that we would much rather have you have a better value. But at the same time, yeah, we got, we're a business, and we do have to make a mark. Um, but it will vary depending on things. And you'll also see um, one of the things that I do, whether it's wine programs or spirits programs, I like to balance programs. So there might be um, less expensive cocktails on the program that we make a little bit more money off of, and then there'll be higher-end cocktails that we might make a little less on. And that was definitely, definitely true when I was running wine programs full-time because if you buy you know, a very inexpensive bottle of wine at a restaurant, you're probably getting the least value out of it because they're paying five or six dollars for that bottle and selling it to you for 30. But if you buy a 50 or 60 dollar bottle of wine, they probably paid 20 bucks or 25 bucks for it. They're getting less of a rip, but they're providing a higher value quality product. And that's true of many aspects of not just our business, but other businesses as well. Right. So like the number one um, money-making company, as far as I know, in the wine business is the Gallo family. And it's because they're selling jug wine and box wine and things like that. And even though they don't make a whole lot of each box, they sell a lot of wine. And so they're going to make a lot of money off of that. So because our programs are lower volume programs, we don't make as much money on each individual drink, essentially. Okay. Yeah, that seems to be uh, certainly 
a choice that the neighborhood restaurant group has made uh, or the specific establishment, but also maybe sort of like a, a fingerprint that you that you kind of put on that program. Um, yeah. You know. So I think that's a that's a cool way to, to explain the decisions that, that, that you make on a day to day basis. And it does kind of occur to me that, you know, it, like you said, pretty much in any industry, there's going to be like the workhorses that really bring in the cash. Yeah. And um, I, I like the idea that you balance out the program by taking less of a margin on some of the stuff that's maybe on the more premium side because it, it seems like that way everybody who walks in the door has something for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I don't know about how other people approach um, going, going into a cocktail bar and ordering a cocktail. Price is probably for me like a secondary factor, yeah. which is obviously a privilege, especially in a place like D.C., Thanks to my wife, Carolyn, for having a good job. Uh, <laughs> but it's definitely something I look at, you know? And I, I guess the thing that's kind of rattling around my head right now is, is that almost like a, almost betrays your expectations that the best value might be on the more expensive thing. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, that's the way it is. Okay. Across the industry, that tends to be the way it works. Yeah, but especially true for us. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah, when you were explaining the, the whole vodka tonic situation where, you know, a $5 bottle of vodka, what's that, you know, quick math, 12 servings divided by $5 is like, that's like 30 cents of pouring. They're charging you as five six or six bucks, bucks for yeah. it. So they That's paid, your standard corporate restaurant model. Right. So they made $5 off of you at least. Yeah. Well, um, they maybe. netted. At Obviously... The thing about the restaurant business is just tough, and no matter what restaurant you are, unless you are like a fast food chain, which has a whole different set of margins in them, a full-service restaurant runs a really tight margin no matter what because there are so many costs built into that drink, like the rent and the labor and all of those things. It's all very expensive to run a restaurant. And the reality is that most restaurants don't make money. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, a, it's a very tough game. It's a very tough game to make money in. Um, and for us, obviously, because we're a business, it's a factor. Uh, but we're lucky that we work with a company that that isn't necessarily the whole picture. And that's why I've chosen to work for these wonderful people. Because for them, having a great experience for their guests actually matters. And having a great value to that experience is a huge factor for them. And that has been the culture from the moment that I started working for these folks. Um, and that's why I've stayed with them so long, because I really like that. I've worked for companies where the bottom dollar was the entire picture. Mm -hmm. And that eventually becomes very frustrating to you because, you know, money is important, but it's not the whole value in life. You know, if it was, then we would all just be eating spam and... <laughs> and drinking water <laughs> right, right. because we wouldn't have to really worry about the other things. That's the cheapest way to get through life, right? Exactly. So yeah. it's much more fun and much more enjoyable, and there's a lot more life to life when you're able to embrace all those other things and experiences. Right. Thinking about maybe one of our listeners decides to walk into a cocktail bar in their area, and let's say that they're being really observant and they're really, you know, taking in the details on the menu and then the way maybe even the, um, the bartenders are, are creating the drinks and the, the things are being served. Are there any tip-offs, whether those are menu tip-offs or like kind of 
flags that might be raised by the way that bartenders are acting that you're either getting a good deal on a drink or the drinks on that menu in general or maybe you're getting like a slightly less good deal are there any signs that you can look to for quality when it comes to like that quality versus price trade-off yeah absolutely so there's there's two things here we're going to look at. Um, when you sit down, you're looking at a menu, right? This is typically how things go. Although there are places that don't do menus, and that's actually really awesome. Uh, not a lot of places, but there are places where you can walk in and say, this is what I like, and they will custom craft you a cocktail. That's a very special experience, and that takes an extremely special bartender. That's very rare. But So typically, you're going to sit down, and there's going to be a menu in front of you. Um, and this is what I do, even if I'm not drinking at that particular moment, I'm just eating, having lunch with some friends or whatever, or a business lunch, I might not be drinking alcohol, I will still look at the menu because I love to see the way things are presented. And a huge part for me is look at it to see, did they spend their time to give you all the information they could? Is there a lot of detail? Are things spelled correctly? You know, there's lots of little factors there that kind of add up to say, hey, these are people who care about what they do. Um, a second big factor for me is how much is the house creating for this cocktail? Are they just buying everything from other vendors or are the things that they're creating in-house? In it could be that they're infusing things, they could be making simple syrups, there could be purees, there could be all kinds of stuff that can happen in-house. Um, that's a whole nother level, that if they're doing those kinds of things, they're definitely committed to a higher level quality. And you know that they've spent time out of their week to create all these things to make this cocktail happen for you. The last factor being was your engagement with the bartender, you know? Are they sitting on the side of the bar on their cell phone on Facebook? Well, maybe they're not so much of a good bartender. Did you sit down at the bar and immediately eye contact happened? Even if maybe they were making five drinks at one time, they gave you a little look and said, hey, I'm gonna be with you in a moment. You know, that's someone who has skill someone who really cares about you as a person. Because mm. the tough part about being a bartender, yes, there's an engineering aspect to it. I need to make this cocktail exactly the same way every time. Mm -hmm. Requires um, a certain amount of focus. Certain amount of focus. But a good bartender is never 100% focused on one task. They're always doing four or five things at once. And that's definitely very important. Um, another thing that you might want to look at when your bartender is making cocktails, are they measuring things? Or are they just slapping things into the jigger, or, you know, into a shaker and just kind of like guesstimating everything? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of philosophy about this. And I've worked at volume bars that were not craft bars where that's all we did is we just free poured the heck out of everything because we needed to move fast. And you could make eight margaritas at once because you didn't have the time. Yeah, just line them up and... Yeah, just line out, them up time and pour it down. Yeah. And those are $6 bottles of tequila, so if you spill a little on the bar, who do you, what, what does it matter? <clears throat> exactly. But if you have someone who's taking the care with these spirits to really measure them out and make sure the cocktail is exactly the way it should be, they take their time shaking it, they really, or stirring it for that matter, um, and they're dedicated to that quality, that's going to make a huge difference. Yeah. Um, and then at that point... You know, I'll pay a high amount of money for a cocktail because I know that somebody has put so much energy and so much time and so much focus into producing that cocktail. Um, that makes a huge difference for me as a consumer. Yeah, I really liked what you were saying about the cocktail menu, things like typos on the menu, how much information is provided. That struck me as very much the same way that I read a resume. Yeah. Uh, I spent probably one, two, three, 
seven years in college writing centers, both as an undergraduate student and as a graduate student okay. and, a, and a teacher. Uh, and so a lot of what I did at those writing centers was teach people how to make a good resume, how to make how to, how to project the best image of themselves and put out a, a product that rep, you know puts a good face forward. Um, and so having spent that much time with it, I can look at a resume. Like I, I don't even need to read the words on the resume yeah. really to be able to like cast it off to the discard pile. Uh, you know, I, for the really bad ones, I don't even need to read a word on it to know that it's not good. So yes. that's, that's a really cool, um, can you talk any more about what information could be provided on a menu that, that might tip you off to quality? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing is, um, and this is something I look for very much at the beginning, is named spirits. Like, are they saying the word bourbon, or are they telling you the specific bourbon? Is it a major label brand that you can buy anywhere, or is it something that they met the distiller, picked it out, maybe even went to the distillery and tasted it out of the barrel? I mean, I... I do a lot of this as, I, as much as possible. My sourcing, I go right to where they're making the thing because that makes a huge difference. Um, also, you get to meet the people who make it, which for me is a huge part of it. I would much rather buy a spirit from someone that I like than someone that I don't. Maybe that's a little bit of a, um, a hang-up of mine, but that's the way I feel about it. So that's a big thing. Name spirits. Are all the ingredients listed? Are they telling you what kind of glassware is it going to come in? That's a big factor for some people. Um, it's not for me. I don't care what my drink comes in, but there are people who really want a martini glass. They love the look of a martini glass. There are other people who would never be caught dead drinking a drink out of a martini glass. That just happens. Um, those are big things if they're telling you that information. They may tell you if it's shaken or stirred. They may give you a little information about it. There may be information in there about the specific things that are happening. And that, that depends on space and whether or not they have that room. At Eat Bar, for example, I can't really get into too much detail about it because we have so many drinks on our menu. Right, um, right. But we do try to provide as much information as possible so they can make educated guesses. And then the second half of that is, is the bartender open to answering questions? If they're using ingredients that you've never heard of, you should be able to ask the bartender. And never be embarrassed about that, ever. And that's true of dishes as well, in my opinion, in our business. So if you go in and there's an ingredient in a dish and you don't know what it is, ask. Mm -hmm. If your server, your bartender, A, doesn't know, or B, isn't comfortable explaining it to you, they're not doing a good job. Right. You know, they should know the products that, they're, that they have, yeah. um, whether that's stuff coming out of the kitchen or the stuff they're making themselves. That's, an, that's a very important factor to me in, in terms of high quality service. For sure. Because people are bringing stuff in that I've never heard of, and I've been doing this for a while, and I still, when I sit down, I may see a spirit that I've never heard of or some kind of vegetable that they're using that I've never heard of. And I want to learn about those things. It's, that's part of the fun for me, actually. I get those on my farm share CSA list every week. I'm like, what is that? What is kohlrabi? Yeah, what is kohlrabi? It's actually pretty tasty. I, it's uh, very tasty. Yeah, it's pretty good. I found that out about a month ago. Um, so I one other little menu thing that, that I thought of while you were explaining all of those little kind of affordances that menus can can provide if there's the space and if there's the desire and the and the, the, um, the service aspect there. I was at a place in D.C. on U Street called Service Bar. Yeah. Uh, our friend Glendon Hartley and um, great bar, really good bar. Uh, had a friend coming by in town. It was near his hotel, so we stopped in there for for a drink and a bite. And on their menu, they actually, it, it wasn't. They weren't dropping names of brands. In fact, most bars don't really drop too many brand names unless you have like a really full full size menu. I find. But what they did 
provide was they had like little icons. So like if it was a really strong drink, they had a picture of like a bicep, like a little stamp oh, right yeah. next to it. So at least you know if you're gonna order that, that it's you know gonna be a little bit more on the strong side. So maybe don't order like three of them, three in a row. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, at Epar we actually we write three words for each cocktail that describe it, just as a little cheat sheet. So, for example, Old Fashioned is going to have boozy listed next to it, slightly sweet, rich. You know, those right. are cocktails that are pretty intense. If you're a vodka tonic drinker, you're not going to want to order an Old Fashioned, and vice versa. Right. And maybe, I know the Old Fashioned, obviously, is a classic cocktail, and everyone should know it, but not everybody does, mm-hmm. and that's very possible. And so it's important to have those little descriptors. And, of course, that's one of the easiest cocktails we have. We've got a cocktail called Zombie Zoo, which has two kinds of Amaro that no one's probably ever heard of. And it's got habanero and ginger and fresh squeezed lime juice. And it's one of our least ordered cocktails because it's kind of a leap off the, you know, the end of the stage there. When people get it, they love it, but it's definitely something that uh, we have to explain. And I'm totally cool with doing that. Anytime somebody was said, hey, what, what were you thinking when you put these flavors together? Oh, here you go. It makes sense because of this. Yeah, I like that, the little three-word temp. It's almost like a haiku. It's, if your drink was a haiku, this is, this is what it would be. Exactly. I, my favorite menu listing, since we're on the topic, maybe straying a little bit, my favorite menu story is I was talking to um, Ben Wiley over at Archipelago, mm-hmm. and they have a, I, I don't remember what the drink was called, but the, the listing under it was just rum and secrets. <laughs> and so there's a lot of trust that goes into that. But, but at Archipelago, you'd be very comfortable ordering it, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. It's a cool bar. All right. So we've talked about menu stuff. We've talked about, you know, kind of the, the way that bartenders and bar managers create co- cocktail menus with varying prices. There's another thing that always happens, or it always should happen, don't dine and dash, uh, at the end of your experience where you get the, you get the check and, or the bill and it's time to put a tip down. And yeah. a couple factors in this. One, like where in the world are you? Keep in, keep in mind your country's practices because this, you know, what we say here, what's, what's happening in the U.S. Variable. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's not the same everywhere you go and there are def- definitely regional inconsistencies with it. But I hope you might talk about tipping yeah. And then we have this weird thing going on legislatively here in D.C. right now. Yeah. And I feel like if you want to, I think it's a really important issue in the industry. So if you want to talk about what's going on legislatively and how that impacts things like tipping and how people in the bar and restaurant industry actually get paid, I definitely open the floor to that as well. Well, so in America for quite some time, there's been a differential between the minimum wage for tipped employees and non-tipped employees. And there's a whole historical reason for that, which we probably don't want to get into on the show. But it's the truth of the matter that most places in America, people get paid about $2 an hour when they're tipped employees. In D.C. right now, it's three thirty-five. I think, is the one we're having right now. And 77 which passed, is supposed to increase that wage over a period of time, but it's going to take about 10 years for it to get up to it being an equal wage. At Neighborhood Restaurant Group, we came out against it, not because we don't want to pay our people, but because, for the most part, our bartenders and servers are making good money on tips, and it's because they're doing a good job, and they're getting rewarded for that, in theory, by guests giving them tips. Um, And they make better money than minimum wage, for the most part. And also, the previous law 
that was in place still said if they didn't make that minimum wage, we still had to make it up to them. And this is, which has never happened as far as I know with our company because we, as I said, we do a good job and people take good care of their, we take good care of our guests and our guests typically do take good care of us. When I'm going out and ordering drinks, for me it's a huge difference depending on what did I get? Did I get one drink? Did I go out to dinner? You know, did I have a whole lot of things? Um, I will tip heavily on one drink because I feel like it's important for me to tip at least like $5, for example, even if I drank one drink because I want to give that person, they spent a certain amount of time with me developing the relationship, even if it was for 20, 30 minutes at a bar, the energy they put into that I think is worth tipping. If I went out and spent $150 on dinner, I'm probably tip about 20%. However, if they knocked out of the park, I could go higher than that as well. But I've been a tipped employee back and forth for a long time, so obviously I'm more sensitive to the issue. We don't know what's going on with 77 right now, obviously. There's some, it might be repealed. Even if it isn't repealed, it's going to be a whole bunch of time before it even takes effect. So the scariest thing that we have is that we're worried that people will stop tipping when people are still only making $3 an hour. Um, right, and that will be it. Will be a major detriment to people who actually do a good job okay. um, in the business. And so, this is Article Seventy Seven. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So it's a it's a basically a DC law. Yeah, affecting everybody in this weird little you know city triangle diamond thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, and just to to kind of reiterate, the idea is right. So people every, people inside the industry are getting worried about this because their salaries and their livelihoods are dependent on what everybody else who's also reading news about this. Yeah. And it seems like it's well marketed, right? It's like, oh, we want to pay people a living wage or a good wage and we're going to incrementally get there. And the, so the, the fear is that people are going to be like, oh, well, now it's like Europe where people get paid a living wage who do these service jobs. And so it's tips are not expected. And so before you actually get to that point, before people happen to be making that wage, people are just going to stop. Yeah. We're nervous about that. <laughs> yeah, that's a scary thing. And I know that the D.C. hospitality industry has really pretty much put up a unified front against that. Interesting. So is there any difference between like, so let's say, let's put 77 to the side. Yeah. In general, somewhere, let's say you're going out to dinner or a bar in a city in America. Um, if you didn't have a bad experience, if you had a bad experience, you know, do your, do your, do your own math, follow your heart, I guess. But if you, if you didn't have a bad experience, what is an acceptable tip? Let's start with acceptable. For me, it's very rare for me to tip less than 20% because I've been in the business for a long time and I appreciate that. In, in bad experience, I actually want to focus on that because why was your experience bad? And that's very important. Um, if your food came out incorrectly, it may not have been your server's fault. It could have been someone in the kitchen made a mistake. Did the server solve your problem? Were they friendly? Were they awesome? That's a huge thing for me. Attitude is a big deal. Um, in terms of my appreciation of my experience. I will forgive a lot of mistakes for someone who earnestly is pleasant and has a great sense of hospitality. Maybe they have seven tables at that time and there's stuff going on sure. and they forgot your ketchup or forgot to get your other beer or something like that. This happens. All of us work jobs where we make mistakes. That's part about being a human being. It's about how you treat it 
that makes a huge difference for me. If somebody obviously didn't give a care at all about you and they had zero interaction with you, they just dropped off your food and dropped off the check, to me that's 15%. And I'll still put the 15% because I wanna make sure that person has enough money to pay their bills because I feel like that's part of the contract that we had when I sat down. But if they did a great job, I'm gonna tip more, 20, 25, even maybe even 30% if they knocked it out of the park. Right. Um, Because I feel like I want to reward that person for their behavior because they, it takes so much to do what we do, especially when there's so many different things going on at once. And that's, that's honestly a job that's very difficult for a lot of people to do. Mm-hmm. So I want to reward that person. So when I was growing up, I, was, I grew up in Western Massachusetts near a small city. The restaurants that I went to were typically chain. Every once in a while, I would go to a non-chain restaurant. As it is in most of America. Right. And so this was back in, obviously, like I was, you know, let's say when I was in high school, back in the, uh, the, the aughts. It was acceptable. I was, t- I was taught that 15% is what you tip. And, you know, nowadays, partially because I hate math, I go for 20%. (laughs) It does make things a lot easier. (laughs) Uh, So what I do, uh, if anybody is searching out there for for a great way to figure out quickly and easily uh, how to just look at the check and then take a three-second pause and then write down the tip number and look actually fairly intelligent at a bar or restaurant, there's a really easy way to do this. All you have to do is let's say your tab is... Uh, I'll, I'll give you one that I had recently. Uh, let's, see, let's say your tab is $55. All you need to do is move the decimal over to the left one. And what you just did is you took that from a 100% down to 10%. Yep. And then, so that's $5.50. And then all you have to do is multiply that by two and that's 11. And then you just add 11 to the original tab number 55 and you come up with a 20% tip uh, that equals out to $66. Yep, super simple. So um, for those of you out there who are a little bit more mathematically challenged like me, that's that's the way to do it. And uh, it keeps things simple. And you know for a fact, like I, I want to make sure that when I'm walking out, I'm not second guessing how much I, I gave. Yeah. Um, and so I use 20% as my benchmark and only super seldom do I go one way or the other beyond that. But, and that's uh, uh, apparently from surveys that I've read, that's typically Americans tip a certain percentage and that's regardless of service. Most people don't actually adjust it. Right. That's just what they do. That's the math that they're used to doing. And I can understand that there's a, a habitual relationship with that. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about economies of scale before we get into the lightning round. Because some of the things that we, we've been speaking about pertain to the way that you at a bar can get the most bang for your buck and then convey that to the customer. Oh, yeah. And so I'm wondering if there are certain things that you do at a bar because you have the time, like because it's your job, right? It's like what you do for a living that somebody who is trying to do great cocktails at home can maybe learn from, maybe slightly tweak or adapt so that they can either generate some cost savings or get some extra quality out of it. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that we do is buy things in bulk, which doesn't always work for a home consumer, especially some of our busier restaurants. We can buy a lot of spirits because we're going to burn through them. And obviously distributors want to make those kinds of relationships, so they make that very advantageous for us. However, at the same time, if you're buying your liquor at a liquor store, they can get those same sales. 
if they're getting those sales and they're doing a proper job of being businessmen or women, they should pass that on to you as well. So when they get a big deal, they should drop their price a dollar or two. They might mark it on the shelf. Hey, this is on sale. I know in Montgomery County, where I started off in this in this area, Montgomery County liquor stores run lots of sales, some of the best sales in the market. I highly recommend checking those out. In DC, various liquor stores in particular will do those as well, the really responsible liquor stores, especially the high-end ones. So that's a definitely a good way to do it. In terms of, um, you know, we have an economy of scale because we're gonna create a cocktail 100 times in a week. So there are other things that go into that cocktail that we can produce in bulk, which will make it both faster and easier. When you're at home, if you're gonna make, say, a flavored simple syrup, for example, you could make a bunch of it if you know you've got the recipe down and you love it. But if you're experimenting, you only want to make a very small amount. And I think that in terms of your time, that's the big part, right? So if you have something that's exactly right and you love it, you know, just make a big batch on a Saturday afternoon and then keep it in your refrigerator. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's not like you have to make it every single Saturday. You can have it for quite a long time. That right. may not be necessarily an economy of scale in terms of money, but it is your time. And time, obviously, for everyone is money. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's, if you're doing this as someone who's working on it at home, you obviously have a full-time job doing something else. So you don't want to spend too much time worried about your cocktails at home. You just want to come home and have a good time and relax, and that's important. So getting all those preparation things in advance, I think, are important. And that's what we do at the bar, too. You know, we have a day where somebody comes in on a Tuesday, takes stock of what's going on from the weekend and from last week, and we produce all those things in one day and that person just takes care of it then. So we don't have to worry about it on a Friday night when obviously time is at a super premium because we have 800 things to be doing all at once. Right, yeah, your sugar and your, your syrups and, and your citrus are a, a big, big time suck if you're trying to do those in, in small amounts. Citrus obviously has a bit less of yeah, shelf absolutely. life disparity with the, uh, with the syrups, but uh, one thing that I wanted to just bring up is, is a concept that I think is used often in bars and restaurants, which is mise en place. Oh, absolutely. Do you do, can you explain what it is and do you have your version of it at your bar? Oh, absolutely. To me, this is one of the founding principles of running a good restaurant or bar. Um, it comes from the kitchen, obviously, mise en place. Everything comes from the French originally because that's where this whole restaurant world got started. Mise en place just means everything in its place. And this is integral. I have walked into bars where nothing had its place. And it was like, where is this thing? Where is that thing? No one knew where anything was. That is a very badly run bar. There's just no way around it. At Eat Bar, every single spirit has an exact place where it's supposed to be. All the things that we need to make our cocktails are in bottles on our bar that are all clearly labeled and always exactly in the same place. All of our bitters are always exactly in the same place, in the same order. <laughs> this being, when I get a drink ticket for five different cocktails, I don't go, oh no, where are all the things that I need? No, the glassware is in the right place, all of my tools are in the right place, all the ingredients in the right place, and I just start building those cocktails. And I don't have to think about it, because when I reach for where it was, that's where it is. Right. Um, if it's not like that, it's a disaster. Unless you're in a low volume bar, I guess. But if you're in a low volume bar, what are you doing? Like, Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. And I, I think the best advice we can give, especially because you know, you're not, regular people don't have access to distributors, liquor distributors in most cases, is your time is your money. So the best way to optimize for cost at home is to, you know, yes, seek out the deals, but also just 
kind of get your shit together and make sure that everything is where it needs to be. Personally, uh, for since I have a fairly large liquor collection, one of the things that I do is I have like a little Ikea. They're basically an Ikea rectangle. Mm -hmm. has some doors on it. And I have my whiskey cabinet. I have my gin cabinet. I have, and I actually have the Campari in the gin cabinet because where does it need to be when I make Negronis? It needs to be with the gin. So there are certain efficiencies that you can achieve if you just like walk into the room where you're making cocktails and like take a good hard look at it and ask some questions. So yeah, that's really good advice. Anything else that you want to talk to listeners about, about, um, you know, restaurants or economics of drinking out? I think we pretty much covered most of it. I think so too. Quick lightning round? Yeah. Beautiful. What is your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite cocktail of all time, what's something you've been obsessed with recently? So I know we talked about this a little bit already. The old-fashioned is something that I'm a little obsessed with right now, both because I think that there's a whole lot of potential to play with it. The old-fashioned right now, as it is, is a whiskey cocktail, but wasn't originally a whiskey cocktail. Started off as a gin cocktail about 130 years ago, um, according to what source you talk to. And what I love about old fashions is you can do all kinds of fun base spirit differences. So don't make it with whiskey. Use a different aged spirit. Use an aged agave spirit. Use an aged rum. There are so many different fun things you can do in there. Um, You can mix in all kinds of different ingredients. You might put in a Madeira, for example, like a little splash of Madeira can Put things together. Obviously, there's a ton of different bitters out there, and you can put different kinds of bitters in that might go very well with different things. For example, at Eat Bar, we have a dark rum old-fashioned, and we use a mole bitters, um, which is fantastic in that cocktail. And also a little bit of, I like citrus in all of my old fashions, that's just my way. And because of the rum, we like to use um, a little bit of lemon peel. And we actually put the lemon peel in the drink. We just rub the skin on the glass. Mm-hmm which gives a very subtle lightness to that drink, which I think is fantastic. So I guess that's probably it. Yeah, I love when you have a simple cocktail like that, like the old-fashioned, like a martini, or maybe even get as complex as like a Negroni formula. You can mm-hmm. get so much by swapping out base spirits and swapping out citrus if there's a, a twist in there. Uh, exactly. I, I love doing that. It's like, it's why there's infinite complexity in the cocktail world, even at the simplest spirits levels, like cocktails with a spirit and then a little something else. Exactly. If you were a cocktail tool or ingredient, what would you be and why? So I definitely would be bitters. (laughs) And the reason is, to me, bitters knit a cocktail together. They bring all of the disparate things and make it all work. And that's kind of how I am as a person. That's how I am as a curator in my bar. I bring all of these different things together and find unity. And I feel like bitters do that. And that's the entire point. You can have a cocktail that doesn't work at all one little splash of the right bitters and boom it makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah it's actually the same when making bitter like there's a nesting kind of metaphor in there it's funny when we um we have our bittering agent as a separate extract because that allows us to account for variabilities in our fresh ingredients like Sometimes you get a batch of oranges that is less oily or more oily than the last batch of oranges. Of course. So you want to have the control to put out a consistent product regardless of that. So that's why we, we add it in. And it's so funny where we'll add it in and we'll, we'll taste and we'll be like, no, not yet. And then you just add like a little tiny bit more and it's like, boom. boom. It makes sense. Boom. And so that's where the magic is for sure. If you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past, present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint a picture for us. So I think one of my favorite places 
with this question, regardless of the cocktail part, but where would I go and who would I meet? It's always been Paris before the Second World War, and I think the person I would really want to meet would be Ernest Hemingway at a bar. The reason being, Ernest Hemingway hung out with everybody in Paris in that period of time. All the cool people who were doing all kinds of amazing creative things. And I feel like I would sit down and have a cocktail with him, which would probably have been a martini or a daiquiri. Those apparently were two things that he was a big into. Yes, he was. Um, and uh, both of which obviously are huge fans of that. A really classically made cocktail would be fantastic. Uh, fan I'm sorry, a very well-made daiquiri in the classic style would be the right thing for me. And then, you know, we'd be sitting at the table drinking our daiquiris and somebody like Salvador Dali or James Joyce or Gertrude Stein might walk in the door and sit down. And the conversation would be fantastic. I don't know what they were talking about, but it would be amazing. Yeah. Because those guys were thinking, and ladies, were thinking about the world in a way that no one had ever thought about it. And truly, since then, no one's ever really been as crazy creative as in that one period of time in our yeah, life. Yeah, the modernists. Um, yeah, exactly. Have you seen the movie Midnight in Paris? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like my one, I think it's like my favorite Owen Wilson scene because he's like a little bit less Owen Wilson-ish. Yes. <laughs> and it's, of course, it's a Woody Allen movie, so yeah. yeah. I have a funny story about that movie. When I watched it, I went to go see it because it was the Woody Allen movie. I didn't know anything about it at all. And then all of a sudden they're going back into my favorite period of time in, in modern history. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But then I also thought it was really poignant that in the movie, one of the characters then goes back in time to the 1890s because that for them was looking back. And I thought that was a really right. fun little nesting metaphor there as well. Yeah, because they're saying like, oh, Paris isn't like it used to be. And, and for, for uh, you know, uh, the character played by Owen Wilson, he's like, he's romanticized. He's back in his romantic period. And then he is the, the lady friend uh, apparently is like romanticizing further back. Exactly. Yeah. It's an interesting point about nostalgia, I think. And cocktails definitely play kind of a focal focal role in in our m cultural memories but that no, absolutely that's got to be got to be another episode unfortunately but are there any publications any books on cocktails or bartending that have been particularly influential for you obviously the savoy cocktail book is something that everybody looks back at also for me huge is the drinking company book I can't remember what the name of the book was or not drinking company death and um, co death and company mm -hmm. thank you what is that book called? I think it's just The Death and Co. Death and Company. So yeah. The Death and Company book for me was, um, when I was really starting to get into this, a huge resource for me. One of my mentors, uh, Ernie Bryce, who works with Black's Restaurant Group now, got me into those guys. And there's a wealth of information in that book. Um, there's a lot of great recipes that you can just make. Although, finding all of the things that those guys have brought into their bar is extremely challenging. Um, as I've learned. But there's so many other different things that you can discover um, that will be a substitute for those things. Sure. And if I really want to find some inspiration for something, I will go in and flip through that book and just kind of like think about how they were thinking about flavors. And then I can start putting the other things that I have in my bar and I can come up with a new cocktail like that. Right. Uh, so both of the books that you mentioned were just kind of like basically these restaurants the, and, the, and the, the minds behind their bar programs basically took their menus and told the story of their menus. Exactly. And their methods. So uh, we'll link to both of those in the show notes. So any, anybody, especially for those of you who are either aspiring professional bartenders or people who are kind of just getting your feet wet in the professional bartending game, these are kind of the next step over, not up or down, but the next step 
over from things like Imbibe that get you into the history of it. These are the things that get you into the technique that is the result of that history. So definitely, definitely great recommendations. If you could give any piece of advice to somebody who's just starting to get into cocktails or home bartending, this would be like more on the, the at-home side of things, what would that advice be? Don't be afraid, ever. <laughs> Try things, experiment, have fun. Um, you may make a cocktail once and love it and then make it again and not make it and not like it. Um, and then the second half of that is while you're experimenting, write everything down. Especially when we start imbibing spirits, our minds start to get fuzzy. And I can tell you when I've been doing cocktail creation sessions, you know, even if I'm trying just a little sip of something, eventually it catches up to you and you don't remember if you put a half ounce of this or a full ounce of that, write everything down as you're going. And I actually will have like a, a running log of what I've been working on and then change things and what's happened so I can go back and look at different iterations and see what worked the best. Um, I also always like to experiment with other people because other people are going to bring in a different perspective, both because they have different sense experiences and will like things differently than you will, but also because they have a different perspective and will have creative thoughts that you may not have. Right. All the best drinks that I've ever made have been collaborating with someone else, where we sat down and said, hey, what do you think about this? And I said, no, how about this? And then we came together and found something that was really the best possible um, cocktail for that particular thing we were working on. For sure, yeah, I've had experiences with that as well. It's definitely more limited than yours, but I think I, at one point I had, uh, I, I was allowed the privilege of creating a, a special cocktail menu with Chantal Seng over uh, awesome. at the, the reading room of the Petworth Citizen and working with her, like I, I was like, I kind of like marched into that email and I was like, here's my cocktails. And she was like, mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, and, and so I was like, ugh, you know, like, like didn't well, at first it wasn't like crazy about the feedback, but then I, I read that she actually gave me extensive like, all right, here's what I'm thinking with this, 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 and and I it blew my mind. And the cocktail menu turned out a thousand percent better than it would have been if it was just me designing it by myself. Absolutely. So really crazy, crazy good advice and some, somewhat auspicious. I, I won't spill any beans right now, but write down your cocktail experiments and. If you want to send those along to us at podcast at modernbarcart.com, it might be interesting information for us to have for a reason that I will not yet disclose. But we are working on some projects that may or may not involve the writing down and iterating on cocktail recipes. Awesome. So, Brian, how can people best digitally connect with you either personally or through Eat Bar online yeah. or social? So the best way professionally is... EatBarDC is our Instagram. We're also on Twitter. We've got a Facebook. Those are all great places to get in touch with me in that way. Um, I do have a personal Instagram, which is not as beverage-focused, but it's BMichaelWrites, conventional spelling for Michael. That's my primary thing that I use. Well, with that lovely outro music uh, <laughs> piping in from the, from the restaurant here, we will sign off. But thanks so much for taking the time to course, uh, talk you. about this. Yeah, Appreciate cheers. it. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts 
and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, Drinkonomics Insights by Brian McGahee, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.